Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. How are we this morning? Good. Lively bunch. I'm glad it's a 225 Bronco game this week. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't aimed at anybody. It's just a matter of fact. Like, I'm just glad that's the time of the football game today. Um, what are we doing? Talking about the Broncos. Here, we're, we're talking about Exodus, right? We're in this series uh, on the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of your Bible, if you're not really familiar with your Bible. Um, and it's the story, it's, it's God's story, God's people uh, moving from bondage and captivity to freedom and to covenant. So they move from this place where they are oppressed to where they're liberated, set free. But then God doesn't just stop with them being set free. He brings them back into covenant relationship. So he steps back in. He says, no, this is the way that I'm going to dwell with my people. And in, throughout this series, I kind of want you to see those movements that we don't, that we don't get lost in the weeds. There's some weird verses in Exodus. There's some weird little side stories. But I want us to keep track of the main narrative that's being communicated that God sees his people who are in pain, that his plans cannot be stopped. And then he continually moves towards us to the point where he is going, I want relationship with you. And it puts the pressure on us to go, how are you going to respond? How are we going to respond? And I think today is one of those messages where we just go, okay, how are we going to respond to who God is and what he's done? Um, this week, it was kind of a weird week. On Tuesday, I usually sit down and carve out lots of time to work on my sermon. I worked on it all day. I'm talking like uh, six, seven hours of just trying to work on my sermon, reading through, this, reading through the text, reading through commentaries. And I walked out of Tuesday with nothing to show for all my work. Like, I just like, I just like, I could not get there. And um, ultimately realized that, you know what? Exodus 2, the back half of Exodus 2, Exodus 3, and Exodus 4 all really wrap around two ideas. God is God. You are not. And once I figured that out, I was like, okay, this is easy now. Um, here's, what I, here's what I know. If I were to just take a poll of the room right now, let's even do this right now. Um, how many of you are God? All-knowing, all-powerful, all present throughout all time, space, like you're everywhere always. No, no, okay, great. All right, so uh, we'll see you next week when we talk about how God is God. <laughs> you're not God. We've got that established, right? Um, but here's what I know. Even though no one would ever say that they're God, everyone acts like him sometimes. Yeah. Everyone does. Every single one of us at one time or another have, have acted like God. And I think what we see in Moses' story here is that Moses has kind of this savior complex and he tries to be God rather than just trusting God. And, and I think that plays where we're at today, that we, we know we're not God and yet we vie for control. We vie for control maybe over our own situation. We just are convinced that we can control certain things. We're convinced that we can control other people that we can do things for other people and manipulate a set of outcomes that other people are going to provide. We think that we are in charge of our health. We think that we're in charge of our finances. And the amount of things that you control is that, like, I just want to remind you, it's shockingly small. Like, I think really, when you boil it down, you're, you're responsible for your response to the gospel. And then from there, I'm just like, yeah, what else are you in charge of? Well, I don't know. Eating the right things, but that doesn't mean you're in charge of your health, in charge of being a good steward of your money, but that doesn't mean you're in charge of your fine, in control of your finances. Like there's lots of things that we have. We have uh, stewardship principles are everywhere, but control is virtually nowhere for us. You know? 
I, I, I said this a couple of weeks back, and I just kind of want to put a clarifying statement on here. I had said something to the effect of like, man, it's, hey, pray for us as a staff. It's been a tough couple of weeks. You know, we've been getting some emails and stuff. And what I, what I meant by that was that um, we've been receiving some emails of just really hard things that are happening. It's not that I've been getting nasty grams in my inbox, okay? Um, yeah, I mean, you might be surprised. No, like I don't get a lot of nasty grams in my inbox. Like people don't email me angry things. So I don't know if they just don't want to talk or, or, or what, but I like, I don't deal with a lot of that. I think it's a common pastor joke, but I just, I haven't lived it personally. Praise the Lord. Um, but what we have had uh, over the span of the last three weeks is four funerals in this room, well, in, this, in this building right here. And we've attended other funerals. We have uh, people that we love, people that we know who are, are, are in critical condition at the hospital, people who are um, going to the hospital, just like crazy hard stuff. That's what I, that's what I meant. Um, and I want to kind of lean into that just a little bit this morning as we consider the fact that we're not God, because one of the things that I think would be best for you to consider is that you're actually kind of small, all things considered. Um, I think leaning into your frailty is probably one of the healthiest things that we could do spiritually, because it is God, God is most near to the humble, and he opposes the proud. And Jesus said, like, I didn't came to save the healthy, I came to save the sick, and that meaning that I didn't came to save the people who already thought they were saved. I came to save the people who were desperate for a savior. So like at a funeral, um, I don't know what goes through your mind. Again, I've been through, I've been to like four or five funerals in the last few weeks. I got another one on the schedule here coming up in a couple weeks. Um, and uh, like I always do a few different things at a funeral. The first thing I do is I just, I start kind of planning my own funeral. Does anyone else do that? Maybe not. Okay, this, this happened first service. I don't know why I felt like I needed to ask the question again. But um, like maybe it's just because I attend a few of them, but I just sit there and I just go, man, you know, what, you know what's a bummer is that these people are, are usually caught off guard. Something terrible, something shocking happened. It happened in an instant, right? And, and that person's just gone. And as they're like wrestling with and dealing with all those emotions and they're grieving that loss, um, what really is, I think, lame is they have to sit down and like pick out what kind of food they want at the reception and they have to figure out who they want to speak and what messages they want to give and they have to set apart pictures for a slideshow and they got to figure out how to put together a service that's honoring for the people uh, that the person that's passed away, right? And it's like, like grief just doesn't care what else you have to do. It doesn't. Like, and, and, and there's all this logistics that go into a funeral that I just go, man, you know what would be awesome for my wife some days if, like, if, I just, if I just, like, I don't know, got hit by a bus because that could happen like on the way home today. Like if that happened, like I would just love for her to not have to go through all that. I would love that. Like I would just love, like, how cool would it be if I just like filmed my own sermon for my own funeral, right? <laughs> I'd just start up and be like, ah, surprise, you know, like I'm still, I'm here, right? Like, um, I don't know. I just think that'd be kind of a cool move, right? And I could do it. I could do it. Um, the other thing that always happens at a funeral is uh, I always sit down with a family and, and it's a really, like, it's a, it's a beautiful process. It's a painful process, um, but it's almost the same process every time where we sit down and, and especially if I don't know the person that we're doing the funeral for, I try to just sit with the family and really just ask questions to get the family talking, to get the family talking in multiple directions. And, and inevitably you end up laughing at some points of that meeting. Like there's just some memories that are shared and it's like, oh my gosh, remember when? And, and it's so like, awesome how the Lord just kind of weaves in these memories as, as just wonderful reminders for our souls of who this person was, right? And, and, uh, and then also, you know, inevitably it takes a turn at some point and then we're all crying together and, and it just kind of moves in and out, right? It just moves in and out of that. And, and I asked the Lord like, okay, God, why, like, why me? Like, why, I, I can ask that all day about like, why am I the person to come up here and preach? But why am I the person who's like on the front lines of people's grief also? Like, what, how, why, why'd you pick me to do this? Um, because my, my personality type is I love to like see problems and then I love to like work and get involved and fix them. 
Like, I just love that. Like, I just like, if something's broke, I'm like, man, this could be more efficient. This could be better. This could be fixed. It could be awesome. And, and there's no way to step into a space where people are grieving and hurting. And you can just, I, I, I remember going to my first uh, hospital visit where the dad was uh, already dead. And I was going to one of my student, one of my kids in youth group. It was his dad. And I was just going to see him in the hospital. And I, I was freaking out. I was a youth pastor. I called Kent on my way there. And I was like, what do I do? I've got five minutes before I'm there. What do I say? What do I do? And his advice, like it still rings in my heart today, is like, you're never going to have the right thing to say to take that pain away. And that just so grates against my personality, right? Like I just want to step in and I just want to have, like I just want to get a word from the Lord and have this perfect verse that I just like, I just grenade that in there. And then everyone's just like, you know what? Thank you. We all feel better. But it doesn't exist. It does, it does, that's, that doesn't happen. Like what people need is they need someone just who is willing to like step in and just listen. Uh, they're going to have questions and you're not going to have answers. Like you can have the correct answers, but you don't have the why behind those correct answers all the time. And you just sit there and you just ache with them. You ache because their heart aches. And then you cry and, and you laugh when it's time to laugh and you rejoice when it, it's time for rejoicing and you weep when it's time for weeping, right? And, and, and again, those moments, they just remind me that like, no, I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the comforter. I can pray that, that there would be a peace that surpasses understanding, but I don't, I don't give them that peace. I ask the Lord to give them that peace, but I don't just get to like, get to like just deliver it to them. Right? So like, there's another thing that I just, I, what I like about funerals and what I don't like about funerals is I'm confronted with the reality of how small I am. Right? I mean, one of the services I was at this week, it was, it was a 51-year-old hit by a truck on a highway. And it was just over. It was just over. And, and I just go, man, you know what? The, the reality that sits in when I'm at a funeral is like, I, I go, that could happen to anyone at any day. See, I mean, the honest, the honest thing, if we want to be real honest this morning, is uh, either I'm going to attend your funeral or you're going to attend mine. Like, that's the same destination for all of us. And I don't, I don't say all this because I don't, I don't really love like gunpoint salvation, you know? Heaven or hell, which one do you want? Like this like hostage moment, you know? That's, I don't think that's what it what it's about. But, but have you considered the fact that you're not God? You're, you're not God. Um, and, and Moses, in this story, we're going to pick it up. He's, he's 40 years removed from the moment that we talked about last week, where, uh, where Moses was picked up out of, the, out of the Nile River, and then he was adopted into, by Pharaoh's daughter, into the Pharaoh's um, household. And um, this is about 40 some odd years later, we learn in Acts chapter seven, Stephen is giving this brilliant sermon of like talking about all of the Old Testament. And he's saying how all of this, it all just points us to the fact that no, the law was given so that it can reveal that we need a savior, right? And, and in that sermon that Stephen gives in Acts chapter seven, we learn that this is about 40 years. This moment that we're gonna read today is about 40 years after he'd been born. So we know Moses is like 40 and low change, 41, 42, okay? So, but we got to know that because it just reads like it's the next verse because it is the next verse. But there's 40 years that span in between here. And I just, I remind you that 40 years, like I want to draw attention to it because where we left off was the, there's just awful persecution, opposition, torturing, slavery that's going on for the people of God. And my message last week was like, hey, God is kind even in the middle of hell. Even if it's tough right now, even if it's terrible circumstances, God is, his kindness is still near. He's still present. He's still working his plan even if you can't see it. And then 40 years goes by of those same circumstances. It's like, I don't even know if I have 40 years worth of patience yet because I'm 31. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
I just want you to get the picture of this. I want you to feel the weight of this, that it was going on for a long time. And that sometimes, sometimes the wilderness feels like a long time. Sometimes the bondage season feels like a long time. But God is still working his plan, and God is still kind in the middle of it. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So now this is the moment, this is going to be really the shifting point moment for Moses where he, he ceases to see himself as one of the Egyptians in their palace and he starts to align his heart to the people of God. No, he sees one of his people. Remember, Moses is a Hebrew-born boy. He was born into the house of Levi, right? But he was adopted into the Egyptian household and raised as an Egyptian. But in this moment, Moses is changing teams. He's seeing all the oppression. He's seeing all the persecution. And he's, his heart is like crying out for it. Like he gets frustrated in this moment. You can see um, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that. Um, every, every bad thing starts with somebody looking this way and that. Not every bad thing, but you know it's a bad thing because he looked this way and that. Like you don't tell a racy joke or a little spicy joke without first looking this way and that to make sure your mama's not going to whack you or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> not that I've ever told one. It's just, you know, in theory. He looked this way and that because he knew he was about to do something wrong. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed him. He murdered him. And he hid him in the sand. What's ironic about this is, is Moses is in a position of authority over this Egyptian person. You gotta remember, he's a son of the king at this point. So authoritatively, like he could have just said stop and the guy would have, listened, would have had to have listened. But he takes matters into his own hands and he kills him. He kills him and he hides him in the sand. Um, my sermon, it's, it's very profound, right? It's very, it's very um, elaborate. You're not God. You're not God. My first point is that you can't save the world. You can't save the world. Uh, no matter how hard you try, no matter how informed you are on Facebook and Instagram or like whatever that you read all the time, um, I don't care what news outlet you're listening to, they're both, they're both bad, honestly, right? Um, they're both just selling you fear and we just keep buying it, okay? And so, so um, you see so much stuff, you see so many things that are wrong with the world. And, and I, I love this quote from Dr. Glenn Packham, who's a pastor down at New Life Church. He says, it's at this point in our life as Christians where our awareness to issues is outpacing our agency. Think about that for a sec. Our awareness to the world's issues and the world's problems is outpacing, it's going beyond our agency, what we can actually do anything about. Well, look, so I, I love that the Criders are heading over uh, to Southeast Asia and they're going to go influence over there. Like that's, that's not where I'm going to go. It's not where I feel called to go. They feel called to go. So now when things pop up on my newsfeed that go there, I'm going to start praying for them. But I don't like, I'm not all over the world. I, like, listen, you and me are limited both in empathy and emotion. And the more that we just continue to take in this disaster mentality that we live in, where everything's on fire and it's just always a crisis all the time, first what happens is we grow, we grow numb to it. And that's not a space we want to be as Christians, where we're numb to the problems of the world because we just see it so often. Like we, we, want, to, we want to be people who are empathetic and who can pray and who can like care and maybe send resources where we can send resources. But on the other hand of that, like if we're just always listening to what's crying out in the world, then we inevitably, because we're finite and limited in our ability to emote and be empathetic, we, we become uh, stifled in our ability to minister exactly where we're at. 
Here, here, here's what happens, okay? Like stressful week at work, if I have a stressful week at work and I have a lot going on at work and I'm juggling a lot of different things and I got tons of stuff on my brain, if I'm not careful, my car ride home is just like the first time in my day probably that's like complete silence, right? And I'm just going like, oh my gosh, I got this and, and you know, and then Sunday's always coming, right? Like with an alarming regularity, like there's always another Sunday and then there's always other things that are going on too. And, and if I'm not careful, I can step into my house being so globally aware of the things I have to do, then I neglect like what I need to do in my own home, right? And I get like super short with my kids and I have to apologize inevitably because, you know, they, they're, do something that's, they're doing something that's not that bad, but I just like pop off because I'm so, I'm so stressed otherwise. Do you see that? And do you see how that low-level stress, that low-level crisis fatigue that just works its way into all of us is hindering our ability to be present where we actually are? And so, hey, listen, you can't save the world. You can't. Like, and I know there's going to be some other thing that happens soon, and it's going to be like, oh my gosh, should I post this? Should I use that hashtag? Should I not use that hashtag? And it feels like in that moment, like in that moment, I got to react. I got to do something. But I just want to remind you before that even happens again, you can't save the world. You might know somebody who's already positioned there. Like, hopefully we know people, like we, we know Pastor Marcel down in Haiti. And when there's an earthquake in Haiti, we can go, okay, Marcel, what do you need down in Haiti? How can we help you? How can we come alongside you? How can we be praying for you? But like our agency isn't to minister to everybody always, everywhere. We're limited. We're finite. We're not God. The second part of the story, um, we see that Moses, you know, he's kind of got this, he's kind of got this savior complex, right? Because Moses, in this moment, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to save all of his people. He, try, he tries to reach down and like f- step into the oppression and the aggression that's happening towards his people. And his grand scheme to set Israel free is to kill this dude. It's like, Mo, how's that working out for you, bud? Well, that's one guy in this whole place. Like his, he's going to try and save the world by murdering this one dude. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now, not what, would, what have, would have God done if he just didn't do it? I, you know, who knows? But it, it was wrong for him to murder this guy. It was wrong for him to murder this guy. Moses knew it, and we can all see it pretty plainly. So he, you, can't, you can't just save the world. You're not God. Um, the second thing that I noticed is that you can't, you can't change people. Let's read it in verse 13. Um, so Moses goes out the next day, hoping that no one had seen what he did. Right, like he did this in secret. He looked around, made sure no one was watching first. He kills this guy, buries him in the sand, and then just has to kind of go about living his life. So he goes out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Moses answered, who, or I'm sorry, he answered, the, the Hebrew person answered, uh, who made you a prince and a judge over us? The like 2021 version would say, who died and made you king, Mo? Like who died and made you king? Why, why, are you, why are you getting involved here? Um, do you mean to kill us, kill me, as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled, and Pharaoh, um, Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses, uh, you know, feeling like he's going to save the world, steps in now to two Hebrew people who are having a disagreement. And Moses, you got to remember, like Moses isn't just a regular dude. Moses is, he's a dude's dude. Like it says in, in Acts chapter seven, it says that he was mighty in word and deed, that he was trained up professionally in Pharaoh's house. Like he, he knew stuff. 
Like he was good at stuff. And apparently we'll read in the next story that he's gonna go and he's gonna save these girls from a bunch of shepherds. Like shepherds are the kinds of guys that like save their sheep from bears and stuff. But Moses steps into the space and he like saves the girls from all these shepherds. Like Moses was a dude's dude. Like he was a man's man. The dude was probably really legit. And so he steps in to weigh in on this case with two Hebrews that are fighting against each other. And, and he, you know, being professionally trained, he probably saw what was happening. And he says, listen, dude, you're in the wrong. And the guy's like, yeah, who died and made you king over me? And, and here's, here's the frustrating reality is that there's been moments in your life where you tried to step in when you can plainly see where something's going wrong. You can plainly see who's at fault. You can ease like, it's just not hard to see the mistakes that have been made. And, and you try to weigh in in a way that you're hoping to change that person and you're not God. You can't change people. Parents, you can't change your kids. You can love them. You can foster an environment that's ripe with the Holy Spirit, that's soaked in prayer, that, that we're teaching about what, who Jesus is and what he's done is just made readily available to them. You can, you can put them as close to the living water as you want to, but you can't make them drink it. You can't. Your, your kids one day will have to grow up and choose for themselves that they want to lay their life down and follow Jesus. You can't lay their life down for them. You can't change them. And that's frustrating sometimes, isn't it? Yes. Spouses, you can't change your spouse. You can't. There might be something that you just have tons of friction about, tons of disagreement around. And you just, and it's just like, man, uh, everyone, everyone's opinion is always the best opinion, Right? I'm, listen, I'm sure of that because it's my opinion, you know? Like, I just know that I know I'm right until the Holy Spirit convicts me and he shows me that I was wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? So spouses, like, and I just say this every time that we, like, anytime we talk about marriage in here, anytime we, like, actually get to talk with people, it's like, listen, the worst thing you could do is play Holy Spirit for your spouse. You can love them you can serve them. You can be present when, they, when they're disagreeing. You can, you can uh, love them when they're sick. You can love them when they're hurting. You can, you can show them grace, but you cannot change them. You can't. You know why? Because you're not God. Only God can change people. Only God can change people. Only he has, here's, here's what's crazy, is we like, we want to we wanna make the world act a certain way. And at that same moment, I think we neglect the fact that we desperately need the Holy Spirit to act any sort of way. But we're like, hey, why don't they start to get on board with this biblical ethic in any category? And we go, man, wouldn't you just do what the church is telling us to do? And I'm like, listen, y'all, we can't even do what the church wants us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's beyond rude, like it's almost evil of us to expect unbelievers to act a certain way when they don't have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our, all of our work and all of our effort and all of our striving and all of our prayer should be around people being filled with the Holy Spirit so they can actually do the things that they ought to do because we can't change them. I think all too often, we as Christians, we, we reduce ourselves down to either doormat um, or, or poster, poster board Christians. Here's what I kind of mean by that. Um, you, you, know the, you know the poster Christian verses, right? They're probably in your house somewhere right now right? You know the ones I'm talking about. Like, just be still and know that he's God, right? For I know the plans I have for you. Plan for good and not for evil, right? And we just go on and on and on. And sometimes we as Christians, like, I think we reduce our, our ministering and loving other people down to just like these, these cheeky verses that we just have memorized somewhere. 
And we just always got to have an answer and we always got to show up with a verse. And so we just kind of have these like, these just rote, like memorized verses. And listen, there's nothing wrong with rote memorized verses. I, I think we should be like just steeped in the word so that the word just comes out of us. Absolutely. But, but all too often when what somebody really needs for ministry is just the ministry of presence to just sit and just be quiet and just cry when they cry and laugh when they laugh and ask questions and just sit there. Because like, um, you know, one of the funerals we did, uh, 32-year-old guy, 32-year-old guy passed away of COVID. And I, I said in the service, I said, listen, I can, answer, I can answer why this happened. I can. Like, I can tell you about the painful effects of sin in the world and how it's destroyed everything and how it's brought death into the world. But I can't tell you why specifically God took him from his seven-month-old, from his 13-year-old. Th- those are different answers. Are they not? And if I were to just come into that moment, step into that space, and I just start slamming all these happy Bible verses on them, uh, those Bible verses are still true, but they're not altogether as helpful. And so sometimes what we need to do is we just need to be okay with going. Like, I just think it's such a lost apologetic, like a defense for our faith to just show up, to be present, to love people where they're at, to serve them, to be kind to them, and to walk with them, and then to be just like uh, like the ministry, I want to call it just like the ministry of honesty, uh, like, listen, I don't know why that happened to you, and I'm sorry, and can I sit with you while you're in the middle of your pain, and can I just walk this with you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg God that he would provide a peace that surpasses all intellectual understanding of what's happening right now, that you would have this just like bedrock peace at your core, um, but I, I don't know why this happened. This is just like ministry of honesty, right? But then on the other side of things, I think we become doormat Christians too where we just let people walk right over our worldview and we just let people do whatever they want to do and say whatever they want to say. And, and maybe, maybe we just let things slide, which is bad. When people say things that we know are wrong, we don't just like take a moment to stand up for what we believe in. But there's other moments, probably much, much worse, is where we actually start, we start to participate in the bad things that are happening. You show up at a party and you're like, man, I don't want to party, but then you show up and then you, and then, oh my gosh, one thing leads to another and that night is filled with shame and regret and loss. You go, what did I just do? Right? And, and then you, you're afraid. I think we're afraid to honestly engage with people because we're afraid that we'll come off hypocritical because we don't know everything. They'll be like, well, well don't you have this answer for this complex question that I just created? Right? And, and we go, man, you know what? I don't know those. And so rather than kind of get cornered intellectually, I'm just going to, I'm just going to not engage at all. And we become doormats. And we let people just walk right over us. But can I tell you, like, you don't know everything. Again, you're not God. You're not God. You don't know everything. But you do know what Jesus has done for you personally. And so you can answer a lot of who Jesus is by who he's been to you. You don't have to just have every single contextual verse reference, memorized, categorically organized in your brain to answer people's questions. Man, work on some of that stuff. Great, get some good answers. I think apologetics is like a good study that we should know how to defend our faith. There's some of these hard questions that you can't answer. But in the meantime, while you're learning some of that stuff, man, just be honest. Listen, I don't know the answer to your question right now. But can I tell you how Jesus got me through a season that was similar to this? Right? You can't change people. You're not God. The last thing that we see in this story is that you can't, you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Starting now in verse um, 16. It says, Now the priest of Midian uh, had had seven daughters. 
Um, and they came, they came, the seven daughters, to draw well, um, filled the troughs, I'm sorry, they drew water and filled the troughs um, to water their father's flock. Then these shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them, and he watered their flock. When they came home to their father at Rule, his, his name is also Jethro. So it's not uncommon at this point in history for people to have a formal name and an informal name, especially the king or the priest of Midian. So you'll see him in the rest of Exodus as Jethro. But here he's referenced as Rule. And, and so um, I, love, I love this verse because I think it's every dad with like a, a, a good daughter that should be married by this point in their life. He, his heart is their heart right? Um, he says, how is it that you got home so early today? Like it should have taken them a long time to water the flock on their own. Um, but Moses came and he helped get it done really quick. Apparently he's like, how did you guys get it done so quick? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us an Egyptian. Remember Moses is a Hebrew. He's, he's born a Hebrew, but he's externally still adorned as an Egyptian. He's still wearing Egyptian clothes. He still looks like an Egyptian. That's going to make sense here in just a minute. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And so he says to his daughters, well, then where is this dude? Like, hey, where that boy at? You just, you just left him out there? Are you telling me this guy rolled up and he saved you, and then he did all your work for you, and then you didn't bring him home? Oh, you crazy? Like, go get this guy, bring him here. I would love for him to be a son-in-law. That, like, that's what he's saying right now. Why have you left him? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Sipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses names his firstborn son uh, based on his current situation, his circumstances. That Moses in this moment, man, he, he can't go back to Egypt He's being persecuted, like he'd be put to death if he went to Egypt. He can't even really fit in with his own Hebrew people. And so he's just, he's just lost. He's a sojourner. He's wandering without a home. Moses couldn't even save himself out of that situation. He helped people along the way. He did nice things along the way, but ultimately he couldn't save himself. He relied on the salvation to, bring, to be brought into a home from another it's interesting, Moses has a second-born son that you read about in Exodus, um, I think it's 17 or 18, um, and his second-born son, the meaning of the name is God is my help. So it goes from I'm a sojourner to God is my help. Moses, in this moment, this is the, this is the kind of pivot moment for Moses where, he, where he's brought in, and when he's brought in, that's when God starts to speak to him and call him and send him where he's, out, where he's gonna go. And so listen, I, I just wanna remind you today, you're not God. You can't save yourself. You can't, regardless of how well you behave, regardless of all the good things that you do, and I'm sure you've done a lot of good things, you can't save yourself. The Bible tells us plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say that the wages of sin, the way you pay for sin is not by piling up more good behavior than bad behavior, and hopefully your balance sheet comes out net positive uh, when, when the end comes. No, it says, it says the wages of sin are death. The wages of sin are death. But the free gift that God is offering you is not this like, okay, now you're just going to start like doing all these things so that you start accruing all this positive change into your moral bank account. But God says, no, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. But God offers you the free gift of his grace, which is resurrection life from Jesus Christ. So here, here's the deal. Like the, the offer that's on the table is that Jesus comes and lives a perfect life so that his spiritual bank account is only good. There was never any sin that deserved death. 
but he surrendered his life and chose to die. Why? So that he could pay for, as God, he could pay for the cost, the wages of all of our sin, past, present, and future. And the way that you get that, um, that righteousness credited to your bank account is by faith alone, through his grace alone. That as you just surrender your life and you go, God, I can't save myself. I need you to save me. That's the moment when your spiritual bank account goes from whatever it is right now, and it's probably a lot worse than you want to give it credit for. And it goes to perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, set apart for God's good use. That's you and me. That's you and me. Now listen, that's the offer that's on the table. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and said, no, I want to trust you. I want to follow you. I can't save myself, Lord. And you cry out in a moment and you go, God, would you save me? Like, that's the moment when you become a Christian. But then for a lot of us as Christians, we still live with a lot of anxiety and fear. And in all of those spaces where we have anxiousness and we're fearful and we're maybe angry are all places I believe that the Lord is, is drawing you into so that he can reveal to you that somewhere in your heart, you don't trust him. And so please, please hear me. Like if you have anxiety, if you have uh, all, any different thing that kind of wants to go in that category, I'm, I'm all for some medical help. Go get some medical help. Go get a counselor. Get on medication. If that's what your doctor thinks is best for you, get on medication. And make sure you're reconciling the fact that you probably have a pocket in your heart where you don't trust the Lord. Fear and anxiety, always underneath both of those things is a place in you that doesn't, that doesn't trust who God is. That doesn't trust that God will show up. That doesn't trust that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. That's what it is. And, and the tendency that we have as Christians is we, ha- we want to walk into church every single Sunday and it's like, how are you doing? It's like, oh, just praise the Lord. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good to see you. Like, awesome, right? All, like, I love all that stuff. I'll be high-fiving everybody as much as I can, right? Um, and I think at some point, we've got to find some space to just be honest with people. Because what happens next in this passage is, is we hear that Israel says, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. It reminds me of the, of the man who has the demon-possessed boy and he comes to Jesus and Jesus, and he says to him, he's like, hey, if you can help him. And what's Jesus' answer? He's like, if I can. <laughs> I love it. It's just so odd. He's just like, if I can help? He's like, all things are possible to those who believe. And what's the guy's response? I believe. Help my unbelief. I just love the, the authenticity of that prayer. That there's a guy who's willing to go, I have parts of my heart that don't trust you, Lord. I don't actually totally believe that you can do this. Lord, I believe in, in most of this thing. I believe in parts of this thing. But help the parts of my heart that don't believe. Help my unbelief. Israel, in this moment, they, they cry out their groaning. And what does God say? And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. They cried out and God heard them and he remembered. It's not like God needed to be reminded of what he did. God doesn't need to be reminded of stuff. He's not like you and me. He doesn't forget where the keys are. He know, he's perfect, right? He is God. You are not. He, he remembers. He's, he's drawn back to this place where he said, no, these are my covenant people. These are people I was in, I'm in relationship with, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That word knew could also be translated, God was compassionate. God cared. Listen to me. If you would just be honest enough with yourself to kind of surrender this moment. Maybe, maybe it's with a loved one that you know or that you came with today. Maybe it's with your small group if you're in one and you can just say, uh, listen, I believe, but I need help with my unbelief. 
I'm, I'm a Christian. Like I, I've made that transfer. I know, I know all the things that belong to me in Jesus, but I have parts of my heart that I'm just crippled with this, with this anxiety. I'm crippled with this fear. I'm so mad because I'm not in control. I believe. Help my unbelief. I want you guys to just stand as I read these verses from Jesus to you. Matthew 6, 25 through 27. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Like I've never seen a bird um, still, really. You know what I mean? Birds are working. Birds are doing things, but God takes care of them, and he provides for them. He says they they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What's the answer there? Yes. 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 How do we know that? The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what determines your value. That's the only thing that determines your value. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Anyone got that move? Nobody. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today they're alive and tomorrow they're thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore don't be anxious and and say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows. Listen, wherever you're at right now, whatever's just crippling you right now, God knows. God knows. What What are we responsible for? Seeking first his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what's the promise? And all these things will be added to you. Listen, so, oh, so I'll just, I'll just be rolling with all the money if I just seek first the kingdom of God? Listen, you will have whatever you need to seek his kingdom. He will, he will give you all the resources. He will give you the health. He will give you the vitality. He will give you the ministry to do the things that he calls you to do. If you are to seek first his kingdom, you will have exactly what you need to seek first his kingdom. And it will all be added to added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I have this saying, John and I have been adopting it recently. You know what that's a problem for? Future Austin. I just, it's like some, some bad news comes. I'm like, man, you know who that's going to be a real bummer for? Future me. <laughs> Tomorrow's got enough trouble for its own. Listen, I don't, I don't need to carry all that right now. Listen, what we need to do, what we need to prioritize is his kingdom, his righteousness, his presence. God, what are you showing me today? God, who have you put in front of me today? I can't save the world. I can't change people. I can love them. I can serve them. I can be, I can be where I am, right? And I can turn to you, God, and I can say, hey, help me, help me, Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I pray that we'd be honest enough to say a prayer like that if that's what we need today. That, that we wouldn't have any pride in this room. God, I pray that you would just, you would just put our pride to death and you would uh, adorn us in humility right now and that we would have the courage to step out maybe with somebody we love, maybe with someone that is just close to us or someone we don't even really know, but they seem nice and they came to church and they're sitting by us today. And we can just go, listen, I'm, I'm gripped with doubt right now. I'm gripped with fear. I'm gripped with anxiety. God, I pray that you would set people's chains free today. 
God, I just ask that you would just minister to people in such a way that they would be able to step out of here, not with the shame, not with the anger, not with the frustration, not with the anxiousness that they walked in here with. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall right now and that you would move and that you would just uh, liberate people all over this room. And God, I pray that we would focus on doing the things where we are. God, help us to drown out some of the noise of the world. Help us to focus on what you put in front of us. Help us to see the people that we can love and serve, even if we can't change them. And God, help us to just continually put our trust and our hope in you and not in ourselves because you are God and we are not. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 